Good morning, everybody. Uh, online people. Uh, my name is Dave Hershey. Uh, I am the Children's Ministry Director here at Koinos, and it is a pleasure to be able to share with the adults today, so that's exciting for me. And uh, I want to start this morning by sharing with you one of my sort of favorite, obscure uh, books of the Bible, one that maybe you heard of, maybe you didn't, and if you have not heard of it, that's okay. But this is the book called Habakkuk. Habakkuk is what is, is one of the minor prophets. He's situated near the end of the Old Testament, and he's only three chapters long. So these minor prophets, they're not minor because they're not important or because they don't have anything to say. They're minor just because their books in the Bible tend to be much shorter than the 40 or 50 or 60 chapters that we see in Jeremiah, Isaiah, and Ezekiel. You could read Habakkuk or a lot of these minor prophets in the next 10 minutes if you want to. But I think what I like about the minor prophets is that if we take a little bit of time to dig into the historical context and make an effort to understand the message, what we find is that these guys can really pack a punch and have some relevant wisdom that rings down through the centuries to us today. So Habakkuk lived about 600 years before Jesus, and he lived at a time when the fortunes of God's people were on a downward spiral. The Assyrian Empire had destroyed the northern kingdom. So again, if you are familiar with this, or if you're not, that's fine, but just for a bit of background, uh, the 12 tribes of Israel from way back in the beginning of the Bible had eventually split into two separate nations, the north and the south, and Assyria destroyed the north. And like any empire in the ancient world, they then turned their sights towards the southern kingdom where Jerusalem was and were going to next invade those guys. So this is obviously a rough time for everybody involved. You have these people that are going to come in and possibly invade you and take you into some sort of slavery. So Habakkuk's book begins with him crying out to God, how long shall I cry for help and you shall not listen? Have you ever felt like that? Like you're crying out to God in the midst of whatever suffering or trials you're going through and you feel like God's not listening? I told you it's relevant for today. Well, God responds to Habakkuk and God tells him, don't worry about Assyria. I'm going to take care of them. I'm actually going to send another nation, Babylon, to destroy Assyria. And to Habakkuk, this is shocking because Babylon is even worse. So again, imagine you're going through whatever suffering, difficulty, challenge in your life you're going through, and you're crying out to God, why is this happening? And God answers and says, don't worry. In a couple of days, something so much worse is going to happen that you're going to forget all about this other thing that you're worried about right now. Well, this dialogue between Habakkuk and God, again, it's short, like two chapters long. The third chapter of Habakkuk is a prayer. And if I was to summarize the message of this very uh, minor, but I think relevant prophet, I would say the message of Habakkuk is to trust God's plan, which maybe sounds cliched, begs the question, well, what is God's plan? Well, within Habakkuk, there's another verse that I think is really uh, relevant, or at least it's one of my favorite verses in, in the Bible. It comes in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 14. God says, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This same language is seen also in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 9, 
And these two prophets lived roughly the same time, so I don't know if they learned it from the same person or one of them heard the other guy say it and thought it was pretty good or maybe God just inspired both of them. Either way, it's a verse in Scripture we see twice. And the message here is that in the midst of, again, whatever suffering, whatever troubles are going on, God is inviting Habakkuk to have faith that all things, that God is working all things in the universe, in the cosmos, towards a good end. God's plan ultimately for the universe that we dwell in is not for suffering and evil and pain and injustice and death, but God's plan is one that eventually all of creation will be flooded with God's presence. Love, joy, peace, justice, beauty, and God. So 2,600 years later, I for one think that's a hope for a good future that can still get us out of bed in the morning. At least it does for me. So if you've been with us for the last many weeks, uh, Pastor Andrew has been preaching through the book of Ephesians, Paul's letter to, to the Ephesian church. And he tasked me with talking about Ephesians chapter 3, verses 8 to 14. When I read this passage, it kind of got my mind over to that Habakkuk story, and I thought they kind of tied in well together. So I'm going to go ahead and read Ephesians chapter 3, verses 8 to 14 for us. It says, Although I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to me to bring to the Gentiles the news of the boundless riches of Christ, and to make everyone see what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the wisdom of God in its rich variety might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose that he has carried out in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have access to God in boldness and confidence through faith in him. I pray, therefore, that you may not lose heart over my sufferings for you. They are your glory. So here in this little paragraph, Paul speaks of the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God. That was in verse 9. He speaks of this eternal purpose that God has carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord in verse 11. Paul believed that all the hopes of those prophets like Habakkuk and all the rest of them, that all the things they hoped would happen were fulfilled in the person and the work of Jesus of Nazareth. Paul and the early Christians believed that the entire story of Scripture from creation and the law through the Psalms, the prophets, that all of it finds its climax in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. In Jesus Christ, God's presence fully enters into creation, uniting the material and the spiritual as one, uniting the mundane and the divine. God's plan to put creation back together to fill the world with God's own divinity is accomplished in Jesus. But yet, here we are 2,000 years later, and we look around, and I don't think I need to convince you that it doesn't look like that dream has been fulfilled. It doesn't look like the knowledge or the presence of God fills the world as the waters cover the sea. Because the waters are the sea, there's no really difference there. And we don't live in a world where God's presence permeates this creation the way that we imagine that would look like. Instead, we still live in a world full of the same sort of suffering, death, pain, and injustice that was apparent in Habakkuk's day, was apparent in Paul's day, probably going to be apparent a couple centuries from now. Here we are 2,000 years after Jesus, and we often, I think, if we're honest, feel as far 
from God's plan as Habakkuk did. But Paul, when he wrote Ephesians, he knew this. He knew that though the big event, this earth-shattering center of history event happened in Jesus, Paul knew there was still more to do. Yes, and as Christians for the century, for over the history of Christianity, Christians have believed that the person, what Jesus did, all those things we read about in the life of Jesus, his death, his resurrection, like we believe these things are the center of history, the big turning point in the story, but we recognize there's still more to the story before we get to the very end. Paul had this mission, he talks about it in verse 8 that I read a moment ago, to bring to the Gentiles the news of the boundless riches of Christ. He had this work he was given to announce the earth-shattering change Jesus had made and what that meant for people. And it was not just for Paul, it was the mission he saw for the entire church. The community of the followers of Jesus was and is to be a community of people who have faith in God, who trust in God's plan for the world, for the cosmos, and learn to live like Jesus in our daily lives. But obviously, or at least I admit, I feel like, sometimes it's hard to know what that looks like. What does it mean to like, live like Jesus? Like, these are terms that sometimes people like me throw around, but what does that tangibly look like? Well, for Christians, in the first couple of centuries after Jesus, one of the primary virtues they really focused on was patience. I recently read this book called The Patient Ferment of the Early Church by historian Alan Kreider. And what he does in this book, he shows that the early Christians, and we're talking about people basically from like the end of the New Testament era, from right after like Paul and his people his age died, Christians from like then for like 200 or 300 years. And he talks about how these early Christians and the writings they've left behind, it doesn't appear they were worried about a lot of the things that we tend to be worried about. They weren't worried about like strategies for success. They weren't worried about how to get more people in the doors. What kind of music do we have to play? What does our marketing have to be to get people out there to come in here? They didn't really think about that kind of stuff. And actually, counterintuitively to us, it was really hard to join a Christian church in the first couple of centuries. They would put you through like possibly a three-year process of teaching and preparation before they would like allow you... (laughs) which sounds weird to us, before they would allow you to become part of the church. That doesn't sound like a good marketing strategy, but weirdly, oddly, people kept joining. And I think we see in here that these early Christians, they trusted God's plan, and they left like those big things to God, and they just kind of focused on the small part they had to play within that, to become Christ-like to serve those who were hungry, to help those who were suffering from whatever the most recent plague was that had ravished the Roman Empire. And they had their own COVID-19 plagues back then that just went through and killed lots of people. They focused on using fair business practices, being people that were trustworthy in their daily life. They lived nonviolently towards all people. And after a deep analysis then of these Christian writers from the end of the New Testament through the next three, two or three hundred years, Kreider concludes with the following themes. He writes, patience is rooted in God's character. God is patient. God is working inexorably across the centuries to accomplish his mission. 
and in the fullness of time has disclosed himself in Jesus Christ. Patience is not human control. People who live a patient lifestyle trust God and do not try to manipulate outcomes. Patience is not in a hurry. Patient Christians live at the pace given by God, accepting incompleteness and waiting. Patience is not violent. It accepts injury without retaliating in kind because violence is not God's calling to them and cannot bring fundamental change. Patience gives religious freedom. It does not compel religious beliefs and observances. Patience is hopeful. It entrusts the future to God. As I was reading this book and reading about these people who share the same faith as me but seem so different from the way I feel I live my life on a regular basis, I was challenged. And one of the reasons I was challenged is because I look around at the culture we live in. I think you could describe our culture in a lot of ways, but I don't know if patience is one of them. Rather than this sort of trusting God for the big things, trusting God for the future, we who call ourselves Christians, I think, are just as likely as anyone else to impatiently employ a sort of pragmatic means-to-an-ends strategy. We are people who, as Kreider said, or I guess Kreider said they didn't do it, we're people who do try to manipulate the outcomes. And this, in my opinion, for what it's worth, is one reason, there's probably a lot of other ones, why churches, people like us, are often seen by the outside world as just another group, another special interest group, seeking power over other people. I think a lot of times our pragmatic means to an end way of living kind of shows, despite whatever we might say, that we don't really trust God. We tend to replace patience, patience and trust, patient trust, with worry and fear. And then Christians use that sort of the actions that flow from that worry and fear. Sometimes we reduce God to a tool for personal success. We reduce God to a weapon that we can use to win some sort of culture war or something. We reduce God, we reduce Jesus, the gospel, whatever you want to call it, to simply a means to get to whatever end we think that we need to get to. But God, Jesus, is not some commodity on the shelf, a tool in our toolbox that we can use to get what we think we want, whether that is to change people, to have a good life, or to win a culture war. And what's ironic, I think, is that if Christians justify our actions, if we think, like, that we know what the end is, we know where creation is going, we know what God's plan is, and if we think that we know that, so we should do this, if we justify our actions by looking at thinking we're going towards a good end, what ends up inevitably happening is that we end up aiming for some other end than the one that Paul and Habakkuk and the scriptures speak of. Because God's end, God's purpose for us, God's goal for creation is not to make us great, It's not to make our nation great. Dare I say it's not even to make our church great. I think it's pretty simply to make God great. It's not that these other things, though, are bad things by themselves on their face, but they're not the main thing. And I think the problem happens or that comes in 
is when we take these things that may be good, maybe they're not, but we make them the main thing, the goal, the end, and we get things all out of whack, and that's where we start to mess up. So it's not that these big pictures, not that the ends don't matter. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying we shouldn't care about the future. I'm not saying that we shouldn't be passionate about working towards good in the world. Paul and the early Christians and the minor prophets and the major prophets, all these folks, they were passionate. They had passions. They had goals. But their passion did not happen in the context of worry and fear Their passion happened in the context of trusting God's plan. Remember when you were a kid, or maybe you're still a kid, I don't know, kid at heart, and you first learned, like, anything? Or maybe you have kids or have had kids recently. I know for me, I don't really remember this stuff when I was a kid, but I've had the privilege to watch my kids are going through it right now. And you watch your kids learn things as they go, as they grow. Well, my son Eli, he's seven, and he recently, about a month and a half ago, uh, started doing karate. And he generally, and I, if, he, if he finds I'm telling the story, he might get mad at me, so. But he generally really enjoys it. And he always, even if he doesn't want to go in the beginning, when we pick him up, he always enjoys it at the end. So, whatever. But this past week, he was really complaining, I don't want to go to karate, I don't want to stay home, I don't want to go, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, we're paying a lot of money for this, like, you need to go, but, you know. Uh, but we eventually kind of got out of him, like, why don't you want to go to karate? Because you really seem like you enjoy it. And he says, they're just teaching us the same stuff. I already know how to do the stuff. It's the same thing over and over again. And I kind of laughed, and I was like, now, Eli, don't you think that, you know, your teachers, they've taught hundreds, maybe thousands of kids your age how to do karate? They know exactly what a kid who's seven years old with a month of experience, they know exactly what you need to do to move on to the next thing. So maybe instead of worrying about all that other stuff, just trust the teacher, the instructor. But it's hard, right? Because you want to go right to the breaking bricks or breaking whatever. I don't know. I didn't do karate. But you want to go to the fun stuff, right? I mean, think of anything else. You have to do the drills. You have to go to soccer practice or basketball practice or whatever sport you're playing. You have to do the hard work and practice to get to the game. You have to do the basic learning how to read notes and practicing the scales on the piano to get to play the song. You have to learn to read and learn the alphabet to read the books. You have to learn basic math to get to, I don't know, long division. But some of the colleges I work with might say to avoid that. I don't know. Either way, whatever it is, in all of these things, we trust the experts, the coach, the teacher, whoever it may be, to teach us, to help us do exactly what we need to do in our place so we can get to where they want us to go. And I really think it's the same for our faith. We need to trust God to instruct us on who we need to be right where we are, knowing that God knows exactly what's best for us where we are, and to get us then to where God wants us to be. So Habakkuk was told what God's plan was, that God's plan was to was for God to flood creation with God's own presence. But Habakkuk never lived to see this. He had to trust God in the midst of whatever difficulties that were going on in his day. And the Apostle Paul, he knew that in Jesus, God had entered into creation, and this was a huge 
step forward an earth-shaking, history-turning event. And he also knew that his mission was to announce what God had done in Jesus. But if you know anything about Paul and his story, he suffered a lot. And he died long before the end of the story. And we're living in the same story. And we too are invited to trust in God's plan to run the cosmos, to bring all of creation to the desired end that God has for it. We're challenged, as Paul said way back there in Ephesians 3.13, he mentioned to the Ephesian readers, to the church there, uh, do not lose heart in the face of the sufferings that you see him enduring. And that, again, same challenge for us. May we not lose heart in the face of sufferings and injustice, hatred, anger, all the things that we see in the world. We're invited to, I think, replace worry, replace fear with patience and trust. And in this, to slowly become the people that God has made us to be in Jesus. I think this is what the boundless riches of Christ that Paul mentions in Ephesians 3, 8 are. I know growing up when I heard terms like, or at least when I went to church and people talked about the kind of like riches in Christ that we will receive. I always got, because I, maybe because I grew up in consumerist America, oh, and I believe in Jesus, I'll get like some cool stuff eventually. You know, other people are greedy now. I'm greedy for something, you know, kick my greed into the afterlife or something. I don't know. But boundless riches are not stuff we get. Again, Jesus is not a tool to get stuff. Boundless riches are not things that God will give us if we're just good believers, good Christians. I think boundless riches are simply becoming the people, taking on the character of Christ, becoming the people that Jesus has called us to be. So we become people who are described as or with kindness and generosity, love, faith, joy, peace, and patience. And the reward is not if we do those things, we'll get something else, but the boundless riches and rewards in Christ are that we become people who are described as kind, generous, loving, faithful, joyful, patient, and so on. So we become instruments of peace and patience, showing unconditional love to our friends, to our neighbors, even to our enemies, that reflects God's own unconditional and unending love that we have been shown. So my prayer for us is that we would become people or continue to become people who learn, to be, who learn to replace worry and fear with patience, trust, and love. Recognizing that we're all at different places in this journey, maybe some of us have been to church our entire lives, maybe some of us this is our first week attending or tuning in, I just want to offer a couple questions to think about, pray about. The first one is, what steps could you take to move more away from worry and fear and closer to patience and trust? For me, it might be not going on social media so much. Maybe it's not watching the news as much. I don't know. What is it for you? And then a second one is, what would it look like, what would it tangibly look like to live more into a lifestyle that trusts God for the future and lives virtuously in the present? to leave the big things to God because God's taking care of them and to do what we're called to do right now. The uh, Dave and Liz are going to come up and 
lead us in another song. And as they do that, I invite you, or maybe they'll invite you to sing, but you can also spend time, again, thinking through, praying through um, those two questions. And as they come up, I want to end with one more scripture passage. This is one from 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 to 7. I think it really sums up, to me at least, the kind of people we're invited to become in Jesus. Love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast. It is not proud, it does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with truth. Truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. May we be people who are described with patient love above all else. Cool. Well, let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you once more for this morning for bringing us together in person or um, in spirit and in spirit. We want to pray for just um, ourselves as a church. Thank you for Andrew, and I pray you bless him and Carmen as they're traveling and bring them home safely. And we do give the future of our lives and our community here to you. Uh, We may have a glimpse of the purpose you have for us, but we trust in you to reveal that to us as time goes by. And in the interim, I pray that each of us this week would become uh, people just more loving, more patient towards our friends and neighbors. Um, Shape us in the people you want us to be. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.